1: At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
0: Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. We're doing the show this week from my house in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Welcome to my home, everybody. Uh, we got a hell of a show this week. I've never been more excited about a show than this one because we are talking to two of my heroes the first one is craig hodges craig hodges played in the nba for 10 seasons he won two nba titles with the bulls in 91 and 92 he's a three-time three-point contest champion he was also drummed out of the league you see the bulls were invited to the white house following their first championship and during the visit Craig Hodges, who dressed in a dashiki for the event to draw attention to his African heritage, gave a handwritten letter to George H.W. Bush. The letter urged the president to do more to fight racism and economic inequality in the United States. And when he did it, it was a big deal.
2: At that point in time, I was a three-time world champion and a three-time three-point champion, and I couldn't get anybody to represent me, couldn't get a team to bring me in. So um, effectively, that was the end of my career.
0: It upset all the wrong people, but he has no regrets about doing it. And we're going to talk to Craig Hodges about why he did it and also what he thinks about the current state of affairs in Chicago. We also have NBA veteran and one-time lottery pick Samaki Walker. But we're not talking to Samaki Walker because of his time playing with Kobe on the Lakers or his famous white suit with matching top hat that he wore to the NBA draft. No, we're talking to Samaki Walker because he was the first NBA player to ever suit up for a team in Syria. But first, let's hear an excerpt from our interview with Craig Hodges about that moment, that fateful day at the White House when he arrived with the Chicago Bulls to celebrate their championship. What was going through your mind that morning when you chose to put on the daishiki, what you were thinking about when you were standing in the Rose Garden with the president? I mean, that took a well, tremendous amount of courage.
2: Well, for me, it was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a child of the civil rights movement. I studied Black Studies at Long Beach State, Dr. King, hero, Malcolm, hero. So for me to go to the White House at that point in time, and it's a cultural imperative for me that we have to do whatever we can to be part of the solution. I had always been taught to write to congressmen, write to senators. So letters was something that I always written. And for me, the garment was part of going to a world occasion and and a regal event and dress accordingly
1: <laughs> so right.
2: from a, from a African mindset that's what I did it's not so much of it being religious as it was cultural and um, my heritage man
0: mm. did did your teammates do you remember any of them looking at you side eye or the coaches or anything like that in yeah, the well, you know, service
2: I won Dashiki's the entire playoff so for my teammates and the, the staff and everybody else it wasn't any it wasn't anything new other than it was something new on the national stage and the fact that I had a letter to accompany what I wrote—that I think had, you know, carried away.
0: Because you're from Chicago. I mean, you're, you're a right. Chicago this, this guy, no, right?
2: No, no question. This is home for me. Um, you know, and grew up watching the Bulls, Bears, Cubs, Sox, <laughs> Hawks. <laughs> you know, so this is this is a uh, this is home, and to have had a chance to play a role on the first championship team was impactful. But I felt like Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, Bill Russell, during their period of time when they understood the impact of what the 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 value, the impact and value of what you were doing at the time and the stage that you were on, that you're not going to be on that stage all the time and or have the um, visibility and and the mass appeal that you have at that point in time. So it's necessary to do what you can with it.
0: We'll have much, much more from Craig Hodges later in the show, and you're going to have to hear it to believe it. He is unreal. But first...
1: Final Walker...
0: That was a clip from Samaki Walker's famous shot to end the half when the Lakers were up 15 points, I believe, on the Sacramento Kings in the playoffs. That game ended famously or infamously, depending on your point of view, when Robert Ory hit a three over the outstretched arms of Chris Webber to bring the Lakers to victory. But today our conversation is far from the bright lights of the NBA. We're going to talk to Samaki Walker about what it was like to play in Syria. It's 2007, 2008. You're playing for Aleppo in Syria. You step off the plane. You're part of this team. What was that like, just to be in Syria at that time?
1: You know,
3: it was an incredible experience because I didn't know what to expect, you know, initially. And I'll be honest, I was ignorant, like some some Americans. I won't say all because there are a lot of aware people who follow up and keep what's going on globally. Uh, I am one who keep up on the current affairs globally. Uh, but Syria was not a place that I was necessarily uh, up on until, you know, uh, right before, you know, uh, my agent actually, who had a connection in the Middle East and brought it up to me, what I'd be interested in possibly playing in the Middle East, which, you know, sparked my curiosity of the region more so than what I've seen on TV. And I didn't have no idea that basketball was even being played and, Syria, you know, Iraq, you know, Lebanon and that region. And so it really intrigued me. And it was a great opportunity for me to continue to use basketball as a platform in which, you know, I was taught as a young kid, and I thought it was probably the best chance I would ever have of being able to do that and travel globally and see things from my own eyes. And so... Uh, jumped in the opportunity.
0: Just from from my perspective, level of competition. Were you like the Wilt Chamberlain of Syria? Were you averaging like fifty and twenty five rebounds or something?
3: You know what? Actually, no. There was some pretty competitive players there, and uh, obviously they're, they're able to bring foreigners in as well. The foreign players who you know I thought were pretty good. Now the the level was nothing like NBA or Euro League, but the competitive play, the competitive spirit was there which was intriguing to me that basketball when they say basketball beyond borders it really is basketball beyond borders or and, basketball without borders you know and it was intriguing to see that
0: and was was there a legit fan base in Syria Are there people who came out cheered you guys on
3: oh wow i i mean i'll guess and i'll share some photos and some videos with you that i was able to take i mean our fan base was incredible i mean uh, the gym Aleppo was yeah, it was a Christian team, which was unique. You had Jai, which was a, a Muslim team, and these teams played against each other with, uh, with you no, know, with no problems. I mean, with the competitive vigor like uh, the Golden State Warriors and the Pacers going to play tonight.
0: <laughs> so, so, so it was like a, a Christian-owned team versus a Muslim-owned team, or you had to be Christian or Muslim to play on the team. You
3: no, know, you didn't have to be. It was just. Basically how it was set up, I live in a neighborhood where Syria is set up is really unique country. You know, it's not just like a bunch of Muslims there, which you see on TV, or a bunch of Christians. There is a, a split. Obviously, it's more um, Muslim. I mean, you have a diverse sect of Muslim. But you also, I live in a street where you walk two blocks in one direction, you're pretty much in a Muslim neighborhood, and two blocks, three blocks in the other direction pretty much Christian. And they lived there in, in cohesiveness. Mm. And these games were an opportunity for them to compete. Now, there was competition, obviously, in this basketball, seemed as a platform to compete, you know, for sort of about their religion and their pride and everything, but under respect, you know, with respect. And, and obviously, I enjoyed it. You know, I got caught up in the passion of the game, the spirit of the game they treated me with class, uh, with dignity, respect. Uh, I was able to sit and talk from several conversations on various levels with, uh, several of my teammates who are all politically aware. Uh, one thing you gotta understand about the Christian, I mean, these people here, unfortunately here in America, sometimes we get a negative perspective and I even had some negative irritating comments. Well, aren't they on camels and running and, horses and things over there, and people are really that ignorant to the development, you know, Mm -hmm. in the Middle East. Let's get one thing straight. You're talking about people. You can go to Syria, you go to Lebanon, you go to Iraq. You're talking about people now who are bilingual, who speak on average two, three different languages. This is where you begin to crack the eggshell and learn what intelligence is about and understand that you can't get – Highly technolized, mistaken for highly civilized.
0: Mm. Let me ask you this. You're a six foot nine inch, I believe I have that right, um, African-American man walking the streets of Syria. Very difficult to not stand out, I imagine, in that situation. How did people treat you on the day to day, like shop owners, neighbors, uh, the people in your neighborhood, like the police? I mean, how are you treated on the day to day?
3: It was amazing. Um they welcomed the American while I was in Syria. I actually felt like everyone else. I could walk the streets. As long as I was unselfish, I picked up a few words to communicate as a local. I mean they respect that, as you would in any country. You appreciate someone who's trying to go above and beyond the Call of Duty to make a connection. And I was able to do that.
0: There are um, NBA players. You know, I've talked to ton Thomas about this and uh, a lot of players about, you know, being racially profiled in the United States. Uh, did that happen ever in Syria?
1: You know, it, it's, it's,
3: it's, it's unique. I have a story. I'll tell you what. There's what I call conscious profiling where you do aware and you do things with intent. And there's subconscious in which things you've maybe been taught subconsciously. we all been exposed to that to some extent. And I tried to be as conscious as possible. That allows you to be in control of things. You know, there were times where being over in uh, Syria, now make, make no mistake about it. A lot of the TV that they see about African-Americans were the Chris Tuckers and the thing, the funny black people where they were making jokes and, and things of that nature. And so... Sometimes they may have gotten a raw deal and their perception because, you know, that's what they were exposed to. But once they were enlightened, that hey, this is not how all black people talk or this is, you know, we, we are intellectuals and things of that nature as well. We're diverse to such as you are. You know, they, they understood that. And so that part is understandable. A lot of us are ignorant about a lot of things. But are you willing to change when the information is readily available?
0: Mm. Did people there ever talk to you about, you know, 2007 war on terror is in full swing. George Bush is in the White House. They said Syria was on their list of countries where they would want to depose the leader and see a new leader. Did people talk to you at all about like, hey, what's your country's plans for us or, or anything like that?
3: well, I don't think they see me as a person who's going to have any power in that position. So, but I don't know. We didn't talk about plans, but I was intrigued about what they thought, you know, because you'd be amazed of how many people who were pro-American, but it was about how were they going to go about doing things of that nature. And so you had people who were avid fans of Assad and people who were, ready to see him go. And the reason I left Syria was because of the beginning of the civil unrest, what I saw. And it was interesting because in the beginning there were two different sects you had the people who were side, Obviously no one knew, even the people in Aleppo who had some knowledge of what was going on thought that, Everything that was coming from the south, meaning the Kurds who they feel that had been armed and things of that nature was moving moving north would be handled by the military by the time anything would get to Aleppo. Unfortunately it were wrong. It came so fast that two weeks later I had to get out of the country and unfortunately it never took a you know, a turn for the for the better, obviously.
0: Now you left the country because the league was shutting down or because your life was thought to actually be in danger?
3: Well, the league was shutting down and everyone, was they were scared because they were scared for everyone, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, They realized that there was no control and obviously uh, my life could potentially be in danger with no question. So that part being said, that was was a no-brainer. It's it's
0: such a stunning story. Samaki, I'm surprised that uh, you're not on like every basketball show talking about this right now. I mean, if I had to guess about why you're not, I mean, I think it has to do with the fact that people in this country are so fearful about this immigration issue. And that gets to really the money question here is... What do you say to people, you lived in Syria, what do you say to the people who say that we have to keep the Syrian um, immigrants out of this country, out of Western Europe, uh, the the people who've been displaced from their homes, the refugees, what do you say to the people who say keep the refugees out?
3: I would say a few things. There is no one face of America. I am a firm believer in being able to work together to make this a better place, also these Syrian refugees refugees are not here because they wanted to be here. They were forced to leave their country. And I can guarantee you, if they had a choice to be here in the United States, even as advanced as the United States is, or in their home country of Syria, believe you me, they would choose Syria. Even in conversation, I would talk, they love their country so much that they would they would take the fact that the power cuts off you know during the middle of the day and things of that nature, because this is a prideful group of people a group of people who who necessarily don't get into the the work life to the point to where they lose family. I've seen the grandfather, grandmother, and grandkids come into the coffee shops during the middle of the day, you know, and granddad and doctoring his philosophies and things. I'm sitting back from afar remember in the time in our country when we had that kind of time, you know, not just the people who had money in this country now who are able to buy themselves the kind of time to sort of have a real family, but it's to the point in this country where you're working so much now and mm-hmm. you have to buy time to have a real family. And so what I say to the people is be patient. These people here are good people. They're people, kind, loving people. And a story that I, I, I think I've shared with you on a prior another show was there was a time in which I was headed to basketball practice and I was greeted by a gentleman who couldn't speak a lick of, lick of English. Now, he had two teacups, one for me, one for him, in passing. He welcomed me over. I grabbed the teacup. I sipped it. I put it back on. We bowed heads. And, you know, he seen me off. And I thought it was one of the most amazing things that ever happened for two people who obviously couldn't understand each other from a verbiage standpoint. You know, he sent a clear message that, hey, I don't really know you, my friend. Welcome to my country. You know, my country is yours. And for me, I think uh, it really humbled me. And I promised, you know, in Syria that I would share my message and my experience to anyone who would listen.
0: Wow. Samaki Walker, thanks so much for joining us. Please let our listeners know what you're up to right now and how they can contact you.
3: I started my own player development business to uh, keep me connected with people. Uh, you can check me out on uh, Twitter, uh, samaki underscore Walker, samaki underscore com. Also, samakiwalker.com. You can check out my, my website. But we're going to be uploading content such as this topic here on Syrian things, global, global topics, getting above and beyond, you know, just the realm of sports. So I appreciate this time, man.
0: Wow. And I appreciate you. Thanks so much for joining us.
3: Looking forward to doing it again soon. Take care.
0: I want to give a shout out
3: to all my Syrian friends, especially my teammates who have been forced to leave their homes, who are here in the States, in Europe, and around the world, just know that you have a voice and that I'm doing everything that I can to make sure that the rest of the world, you know, hears your pain.
0: Thanks to Samaki Walker. Now let's bring it back to the inimitable. You have to hear this. Craig Hodges, on the current unrest in Chicago. I mean, as a Chicago guy, please talk to our audience. What the hell is happening in that city right now?
2: Well, you know, I think, really, I think it's it's the pimple coming out, and it's not anything that hasn't been going on, man. And it's amazing the impact of social media to justice. And in a lot of ways, it's sad, man, to see you know what's going on from a standpoint of the cover up and we can talk that it's not a cover up you know the bottom line is that lives are being lost at a epidemic rate we're almost anesthetized to it but now i see the our young people are understanding the impact of what you know what it is so i applaud the young brothers from University of Missouri i applaud the black lives matter movement they understand the struggle, and they understand that it's their generation that is is truly impactful in any struggle that's ever gone on. It's the young folks, man. It's not it's not old cats like me and you that's gonna make the true impact. It's those uh, young folks on the street who understand this is their world, and that they have some say in the matter of where it goes and where it's going.
0: So, when you see as, as a as a lifelong Chicago guy you see the video of Laquan McDonald being executed. Mm-hmm. Is it fair to say that mm-hmm. you were shocked but not surprised?
2: You know, and and that's the, that's the ugly part of this thing, man, is that it's not shocking anymore, man. At one point in time, Rodney King was shocking. Right. And I think now over the years, we've come to expect this to be going down. And now with, the advent of uh camera phones and dashboard cams and uniform cams. More is coming out. But I I feel like the ugly ugliest part is that how many how many uh stats are not kept about how many people are being killed mm. by police officers and the like so it's you know, and, and and my thing is not to be reactionary about this thing, but to be in in more of a solution mindset. So that's what I've been doing is keeping my nose to the grindstone, putting together programs, putting together ideas with other people of like minds, so that we this guy see, and that's the thing that I want to try to engage my people with black people mm-hmm. and people of African descent is that it's not going to happen through violent means, man and that we ain't gonna be able to overcome this thing through violence, but I think through our ability to control our work place, whether it be work stoppages, they, they work, you know? So, you know, I, one of my brothers said, pick up where you at, pick up by your bootstraps where you at, so if I'm in the legal field, hey man, don't do law for a month. If I'm hooping, I ain't hooping for a month. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And see if we can impact it that way. But we have to be and you know, I'm I'm chuckling about it but it's it's not a laughing matter, but we have to realize who we are as a people and, and as a people, if we can love our enemies the way we have, we know who we are as a people. So we gotta turn that love inwards to where we can love each other the way we've been loving everybody else.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That was beautifully said. The, the Chicago Teachers Union, I know, is voting on striking this week, and I know they've been trying to connect and do work with Black Lives Matter um, around the right. McDonald case. Um, do you have any words for the Chicago teachers who are looking to take on Rahm Emanuel?
2: It's so ugly, man. It's so ugly that we can be in perhaps the most sophisticated city on the face of the earth. Perhaps the most powerful, just coming from Rahm in the statement that he made prior to becoming the mayor of Chicago, someone asked him when he was chief of staff, Rahm, you're running for mayor, um, so you move moving to a smaller pond. He said it ain't necessarily so. So just the impact of that statement lets me know how impactful Chicago is. And for us not to really give a damn about children and their education is criminal at best when I think about Rahm Emanuel and, and his Cover up on so many levels, you know that our children suffer, man, so our children suffer not only from the violence, they suffer from the poverty, they suffer from the lack of education. And then the teachers don't have any recourse because the monies are being siphoned off by unsavory characters and 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 organizations, so the children suffer, so mm-hmm. the, the teachers you know then you think about in the Chicago public schools compared to other school districts the mental stress that, that it causes from being in the Chicago public schools.
0: Yeah. You know,
2: so I applaud the, I applaud the teachers and I back whatever position they take as a, as a group, you know, because it's wrong, man, it's wrong. And then once again, teachers strike, children suffer. But at the same time, I I can recall it was a point in time in this history and I, and the condition of our people. So you look at Chicago public schools, who is it going to affect? black and brown children you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. so once again it may be high time that we look at educating our children in a different way so maybe the strike would might be an opportunity that's another thing that Rahm said when you have um when you have a calamity within the calamity and chaos is opportunity right
1: mm.
2: so maybe this is that. the same thing <laughs> maybe this is the same type of situation where Within the chaos and calamity of a strike, maybe we can take our children by the head and let them see that, hey, man, this is how much they care about you. And you have to care about yourself enough to continue to read why they're striking, to continue to write why they're striking, do some push-ups, do some sit-ups while they're striking. But don't stop knowing that your life matters.
0: And uh, Ram, you mentioned Rahm Emanuel, and, and Ram said quite explicitly in the Chicago Tribune there was no cover up. How do you respond to that?
2: Come, Come on, man, please. You know, and it, it's you know, and that's the that's the joke of the whole thing is that you have the ability through media to be able to to spin this thing however you want to spin it, and then the, the powerful have uh, some stake in our demise. So it's a it's a it's a collaborative effort. So you have a collaborative effort with the state's attorney's office who understands that I'm you know, come on man, it's a joke. It's mm. a joke. You know, how are you gonna tell me how are you gonna tell me you're gonna pay these people five million dollars? Then what the hell are you paying them for if you ain't see the tape?
0: Mm. Well, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, that's that—that's real talk. It's it's kind of hard to fathom. The other thing that's hard for me to fathom is that uh, Hillary Clinton, who's probably going to be the Democratic nominee, backed Rom to the hilt. He's their old buddies or whatnot. Uh, any reaction to that of Hillary just being like, "Hey, Rom's telling the Man, truth."
2: Once again, once again, her people. Now all the all the garbage in your emails, you covering up. Of course, of course, the cover up, we're gonna cover up the cover up.
0: <laughs> oh, oh man! Let's
2: keep let's, let's keep this thing quilted and covered, man. Yeah. Let's stay insulated. Let's stay insulated because while we stay insulated, everybody else is suffering. And as long as we don't suffer, because we know we t- we we part of that one percent, man. Ugh. They part of that one percent that don't give a about people. Excuse my French. No, that's okay. But they don't give it. They, they don't give it. They don't care, man. And how we going to sit here and look as though they care, knowing that they don't care about my baby, mm-hmm. let alone let alone a Syrian baby or anybody else's baby that ain't part of that 1% who's going to get the inheritance. So, man, it, I tell my people this. Based upon the suffering of our ancestors, based upon the eradication of our leadership, you have the advent of this gang that's going on now. But Based upon all of that, I ask the Creator, forgive us because we don't know what we're doing. So let us not kill each other because we don't know what that entails. So some of this is out of ignorance due to a system of racism, white supremacy that taught us to hate, hate each other and that I can't be nothing if I ain't white or close to white or close to white people. It's a sad situation that our babies suffer under something that You look on the planet Earth, man, it's enough to go around. It's enough to go around. It's enough jobs to go around. It's enough food to go around. It's enough water to go around. But those who have been greedy for so long don't want to give up, don't want to redistribute no wealth, don't want to reconstitute or reinvigorate the lower level of society. So this thing now, man, it ain't even about black and white no more. This thing is about class. If you want to stop and take a cold-hearted look at it, if you ain't got no bread, you ain't nothing. Mm-hmm. If you got cash, you cool. Oh,
0: Craig, l- l- let me ask you uh, one last question, and then I want to ask mm-hmm. you about about the book, mm-hmm. and then I thank you mm-hmm. so much for your time. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- what Do you have any message um, for anybody on the Chicago Bulls about what you would like... To perhaps see them well, doing you know, in the wake of what's happening. One
2: thing, one thing I would say, you know, and I've been thinking about this, and I saw where LeBron signed a lifetime contract today with Nike, and I love it all. I love these young brothers getting their opportunity to create a certain amount of wealth. But my question becomes, how much is enough, and how much, how much is how much? I can't tell nobody how to spend their money. First of all, I'm not trying to do that, but I'm also asking us uh, to be conscious about the condition of poor people and condition of your people. So I know I can say things that Derrick Rose could never say based not only on where I've been experience wise but based upon where he is in the game right now. He couldn't he couldn't say boycott. I said I asked Magic and Michael to boycott in 1991 when we were facing the Lakers in the World Championship. I asked that Wait, you you
0: asked Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan to do a a boycott? Yeah,
2: to to boycott the world championship because that's the only time that we have any power is is, is at All-Star Weekend and and during the playoffs. What was the issue? The issue was, the question at that point in time was black ownership, black general managers, and the like. Mm. Black executives. So my position was, as 21 of the 24 athletes, is black. Ain't no other time when we're going to have any say-so. So in 1963, Jerry Weston and, and Elgin Baylor threatened to boycott and sit out of the All-Star weekend and the All-Star game, and that made changes. They made changes immediately. So the thing becomes is, once again, harking back to what Missouri football players understood and still understand the impact of what your talent brings to the marketplace and what it can change. So I understood at that point in time if the two MJs, Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan, decided to to boycott, it would be some changes made, man. With uh, a billion people ready to watch. All-Star Weekend coming up. If we want to make changes, let us boycott. Let us not only boycott as players, but let us boycott as a people and don't show up to All-Star Weekend. Let's sit home. Let's sit home and not watch the game. Let's sit home and not watch the weekend event. But let us sit home and strategize how we can utilize our human power to change the condition of our children. So mm. let us have a book. Re- let us sit at home and have a reading and writing weekend and mm. highlight our children and the, and the highlights of what they're doing within the context of their little lives. Oh. As opposed to us spending millions of dollars with people who aren't caring about us, man,
0: right. were we- it's
2: about our consumer dollars.
0: Were either of the MJs warm to the idea?
2: No, 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 no. It's too extreme. Mm. It's too extreme. Come on, is this too extreme? Of course. Because why? Why is it too extreme? Because it's too extreme when we make a move, but it's not too extreme when we get locked out. Right. <laughs> and you look, when they, you look when we get locked out. When do they lock the athletes out? They lock athletes out during training camp, in the early part of the season, because they know we're going to make that revenue up at all star weekend and at the playoffs, even in a shortened season.
0: Wow. So, just the economics
2: of it. So, for instance, for instance, you tell me, you tell me, uh, Dave. hmm. NBA gave Nike the contract for uniforms, they next in line. Are those jobs that's going to produce them uniforms going to be here or in China?
0: Oh, no, they're going to be way overseas. Yeah. China okay, or so Southeast now, Asia.
2: So now the question becomes, the question becomes, do we care about the future of children in America? Where are those jobs going? LeBron, you got a, you got a lifetime contract with them. Is that coupled with employing... And creating manufacturing jobs in America with Nike to do some of that here.
0: Yeah, that would be the step that athletes could leverage. Absolutely, particularly we
2: don't have it. Come on, come yeah. on. Especially when you you're in the, the catbird seat. Dwayne Wade did something similar to that. I think he he had a Chinese company do his shoe, and he you know he took it a more on as a as a corporate type thing. But I don't know where it went. I don't know where to, mm-hmm. if, it, if it created jobs here, but if we ain't creating jobs and economic opportunities, man, we ain't we ain't worth our salt because poverty is directly linked to violence and murder and mayhem. So if we if we drain the jobs out of Northbrook, if we drain the jobs out of Fairfax County, Virginia, let's see if them people are gonna do the same thing that black people's doing in their communities, man, mm-hmm. wreck havoc. You know?
0: Yeah. Last question, Craig. First of all, thank you so much for your time, for your honesty. No, man, I appreciate it, man. This is this is this is hot fire. But I, I wanted to to ask you about um, the book. You're writing a book mm-hmm. right now. Um, when right. Do you, why did you decide to do it? When do you expect it to be out, and what do you hope its impact to be?
2: Well, the reason is that when you know the speculation of what happened with me going to the White House. Uh, People call me from 30 to 30 to do a piece. And it's, it's been so much speculation as opposed to what actually went down for me. So I felt it necessary to do that, not only for that reason, but also to have a historical documentation mm-hmm. for my children and grandchildren.
0: And do you have a Twitter feed so people can contact you?
2: Yep. Craig Hodges, NBA.
0: Craig Hodges, NBA. Craig, thanks so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports
2: podcast. Uh, Appreciate you, Dave. Thanks, man.
0: Thanks so much, Craig. Wow. Samaki Walker, Craig Hodges, uh, unbelievable stories. I mean, that stuff is just text. I hope people listen and re-listen to those interviews. Now we're at the part of the show where I read one of my columns from thenation.com. And it's sort of an annotated version where I read the column. I speak a little extemporaneously. If you want to read along, you can go to the article online. There are links in the description of this podcast. The column this week is about sports and Donald Trump. Don't turn it off, please. Not unlike Donald Trump himself, we actually have to start paying attention to this. Do we? (laughs) Kind of do. I mean, he's leading the Republican field. (laughs) My producer thinks we don't need to pay attention to Donald Trump. I I disagree. I think it's time to check out what's happening here. So the the news this week has been absolutely dominated by Donald Trump's uh, bombastic pronouncement that he was going to, if president, ban all Muslims from entering the United States. Now, he made this statement, he made this splash, he spewed this vitriol and hatred the day after President Obama's Sunday night Oval Office address, where the president spent some time trying to argue that anti-Muslim bigotry was not the answer for defeating ISIS. But the part of the speech that raised Trump's ire was really somewhat stunning. He tweeted out, Obama said in his speech that Muslims are our sports heroes. What sport is he talking about and who? Is Obama profiling? What in the name of Muhammad Ali is Donald Trump inhaling other than the fumes of his own gaseous ego? Look, it would be so easy, as a lot of people have done, to list off the dozens and dozens of Muslim athletes in the United States and discuss how the USA has cheered them on for decades. And anyone is free, if they want to, to go to the very incomplete Wikipedia page and see it for themselves. I call it incomplete because the list fails to mention the many world-class Muslim female athletes. It's just a bizarrely all-male list. But even just looking at the male Muslim athletes, I mean, it's a list as long as your arm. So, and I think it should be obvious just how indescribably desolate the U.S. sports landscape would have been without Muhammad Ali, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, or Akeem Olajuwon, just to name a few. By the way, some people say Shaq is also a Muslim, but in his own words, he said, I'm Muslim, I'm Jewish, I'm Buddhist, I'm everybody because I'm a people person, end quote. By the way, Shaq, open invite to ever come on the podcast, if you ever like. So, Trump's efforts to render Muslim athletes invisible also demonstrates just how powerful sports can be as an instrument against Islamophobia. Perhaps we should just ignore Trump's idiocy, like my producer Dan thinks we should, as we would any troll. However, the Trump troll is its own breed, like a cockroach that survived repeated blasts of raid and has emerged stronger and more resistant to the normal remedies. Ignoring a person who is building a leading presidential campaign on a brand of racism, being aped by the other candidates, is just an unaffordable luxury. Now, the best sports-related antidote that I could think of to this toxicity would be to read Giant Steps, Kareem's 1983 memoir. The book was my first introduction to what it means to be a Muslim. The all-time NBA scoring leader explained the difference between Sunni and Shia beliefs, and he outlined the gap between the nation of Islam and classical texts. It's a fascinating primer on what it means to be a Muslim. Now, not knowing any Muslim as a kid, this was a life-changing read for me, and it had a great effect on how I see the world. Bluntly, it is very difficult to support the bombing and demonization of an entire people when you understand them to be human and it is the effort of Trump and his fellow thinkers to see Muslims as something less than human. Everyone should read Giant Steps, if for no other reason than to break free from the mass hysteria that threatens to further bring the war home and turn it into a national purging. Using sports to humanize people was a smart move by President Obama, just as it was smart for Bush to give Muhammad Ali the National Medal of Honor and calling the champ a man of peace while continuing to wage war. It's just smart politics. But we should also be clear that if someone is worth cheering, then their community is not worth criminalizing, and their people should not be killed indiscriminately. To think otherwise is not a road to any kind of peace or victory. It's a recipe for endless bloodshed. It's also Trump's only path to the White House, making us as savage as his rhetoric. This is why he wants a cloak of invisibility on roundly admired people. It's the only way to brand them all as the enemy. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team for refusing to play Trinidad and Tobago in Hawaii over the weekend. Uh, They wrote a stirring statement about it. We'll have a link to it in the description of this podcast. But just all the respect in the world for this team refusing to play. The field was incredibly dangerous. The photographs I saw of the turf are shocking. You wouldn't want your 10-year-old kid playing on this. It was a recipe for broken ankles, torn ACLs, and shortened careers. And they stood up and said they would not play. Just like the Missouri players, they exerted their rights as labor to say, these are unsafe and we won't do it. And I especially admire them from doing it because one of the things that they were criticized for nonstop was, you have all these fans who want to see you. This is supposed to be your victory tour. 15,000 kids, they all wanted to see you play. This was their one chance. And the players spoke about this really well. They said, look, we're trying to teach our fans that we stand for something. We're trying to teach our fans that we, we deserve respect. And I thought that was so important because oftentimes, what about the fans? It's something that's also used against teachers when they go on strike. They, what about the children? I mean, I think Craig Hodges mentioned that briefly. What about the children? And it's this idea that ignores the fact that working conditions are the learning conditions Whether it's students in the classroom or whether it's young people watching you play. What are they learning if you're carted off the field? What are they learning if they see you get hurt? The field was utterly substandard. The players were right to stand up for themselves. This has been the year of women in sports. Whether we're talking about Serena Williams, the defeat of Ronda Rousey, and, of course, the U.S. women's team going to victory in Canada. And let me tell you something. This act by the U.S. women's national soccer team stands alongside all the moments of triumph from 2015. It's in the tradition of Billie Jean King. It's in the tradition of Martina Navratilova. It's in the tradition of every woman who stood up and said, we demand to be treated like athletes, not like second-class citizens. Thanks, everybody, for listening. You can contact me, Dave Zirin, on Twitter at Edge of Sports or email me at edgeofsports at slate.com. We will read our best emails on the air, so please send them in. Be creative. Be fun. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher. You can listen to it on SoundCloud. And please go back and listen to old shows. I mean, the show last week where we talked to DeMora Smith from the NFLPA about the concussion movie, among many other things. The shows where we have talked to Chuck D., John Legend, John Angelos, uh, the owner of the Orioles, Son of None, Baltimore MC. It's just an amazing lineup of guests. Please go into the archives and listen to all of it.